have to make sure when you set out to do something in sales or life that you're squarely facing the outcome you're after, or at least the direction you want to go and you're kind of, you know, you're on your way. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was my friend, Ralph Barcy. Ralph is Vice President, Global Inside Sales at Trade.io. And he is, as I've said often on this show, he's one of my favorite people in the entire sales profession and in life in general. And as always, when Ralph is on the show, we start off by talking about the books we've read. And after that, we're going to tackle some big topics, including what's the purpose of having quotas if so few sellers actually meet or exceed them? And what's the point of continuing to raise quotas in the absence of appropriate investments in sales training, management training, and enablement? We also dig into whether we should go about onboarding people differently and are we doing it the right way and why the way we're currently doing it perpetuates some of these problems we're talking about in terms of quota attainment and we explore whether there's a better way to compensate sales managers that would ensure that more sellers hit their numbers so we get into all this and much much more but before we get to ralph i want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on itunes spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts so let's jump into it ralph barcy welcome back to the show thanks andy how are you today uh, not too bad. Not too bad. We're recording on Halloween, just so people know. And, and Ralph, you have your, what looks like your prison jumpsuit on, um, <laughs> your bright orange shirt. Yes. And a full head of hair as well. Full head of hair. Well, that's right. Have you been out uh, picking up trash by the side of the road or something? It looks like. <laughs> so rough morning. Yeah. Rough morning. Right. Right. So if people pay attention to every time you come on the show, we always start by talking about books, books we're reading and uh, not necessarily even sales books, though they can be sales related. Mm -hmm. So what's, uh, what have you been reading? That's, that's got you excited. Well, I hope I don't butcher the title of it, but it's called Ichiban. And uh, I've been following, I can't remember the name of the account but I've been following an, an account, a couple actually, on Instagram that highlight books. Mm-hmm. Very, ner- very nerdy, but mm-hmm. I love it. I yeah. love it. And I yeah. found out about Ichiban uh, through one of these Insta accounts. And the subtitle is The Secrets of Japanese Precision, Managing Daily Crises the Japanese Way by Understanding the Science Behind Human Factors and Resilience Engineering. Uh, it's authored by Kosuke Sendo, who I believe is or was uh, an airline pilot. So uh, it's kind of a rule book, guidebook uh, that pilots use that, of course, uh, contain rules and principles and processes that translate to life and sales, of course. Sure. Uh, and I found it it's fascinating so far. I'm about, I don't know, 85% of the way through. So it sounds a little bit, maybe in theory, similar to Atul Gawande's The Checklist Manifesto. A favorite of mine. A and favorite it, of mine as well, yes. Yeah, it's a lot like that. It's less dense, uh, but uh, nonetheless still has just a bunch of value nuggets throughout it. Yeah, I mean, I, always, I really like The Checklist Manifesto because I think it's just such a, for sales in particular, it's it's... As you know, I'm a big advocate. We also come up with our own processes for how we sell. But a checklist is a good way to check if you're doing the things you think you should be doing or you think you are doing. Um, 
And yeah, I, I use them quite a bit. Same. Yeah. Uh, that book is, uh, is and was a game changer for me. What, what I love about just the whole concept of having a checklist is uh, being able to line check that checklist. So, you know, if you're not getting the results or outcomes that you expect, you've got to go back, you know, to see where the kink in the chain is, so to speak. Uh, and you can't do that if you don't have a set list to follow. Right. So big fan. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Two recommendations for people to check out. Ichibun, I-C-H-I-B-U-N. Uh, Ichiban in Japanese means number one. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. sure what Ichibun means. But um, yeah, check that out. Check out the Checklist Manifesto. Now, I just got through reading and interviewed for the show. Matt Dixon who was one of the co-authors of Challenger Sale. And his new co-author, Ted McKenna, wrote a book called The Jolt Effect about what really is driving customer decision-making and uh, yeah, very interesting book and sort of the premise being that customer indecision is really the big, the big roadblock, the big challenge. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with indecision? Um, So yeah, uh, great book, good perspectives. You know, they did tremendous amount of research uh, gosh, analyzing millions of calls uh, through this technology company, Tether. And, you know, like a lot of books, I think that it's important for sellers to read, not that you necessarily say, oh, hey, this is the Bible. Like everything is you got to factor in with your own experiences, but it's another perspective that may be different than what you're thinking to take into account when you're actually, you know, dealing with your buyers. Uh, I love it. It's the whole seek first to understand before being understood mm-hmm. approach. At least it sounds like that. And does, uh, Andy, does Jolt, is that an acronym for something? It is. Yeah, let's see, let me, if you, give me two seconds. I'll look it up here. <laughs> Another great book uh, titled uh, with Jolt and the title is from my friend, Larry Long Jr. Do you know Larry? I know Larry. Yes. Oh, it's a, just a great, great motivational, inspirational book. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, gets, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say he gets personal in it. Talks a lot about his his um, his role models in life, but also, of course, relates it to the reader. Just yep. outstanding read. Yeah, and Larry's a great a great follow on social. Um, get a chance to hear him speak. As you said, he's very very inspirational. Yeah, I happened met him at a conference about four or five years ago for the first time, and yeah, had him on the show, and yeah, really enjoy speaking with him. Yeah, it makes me feel like I'm not doing nearly enough with my life. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Yeah. We got to step it up. We have to step it up. Why aren't we slacking all this time? So, uh, yeah, it's like talking to my friend, Jeb Blunt is like, yeah, yeah. What you've written your fourth book this year. (laughs) Come on, man. Pick it up. Pick it up. (laughs) Okay. So jolt just so you know is Jay is judging indecision. O is offer your recommendation what they're saying is rather than ask confused customers what they want, tell them instead what they should buy. Uh, three limit exploration because you got to constrain the number of choices, perhaps that the buyers are looking at. And then one that's perhaps most, uh, relevant to their thesis is you take risk off the table. So of course, love that. Creative are you imagining customer fears about making a decision? So that was, yeah, jolt effect. Um, What's on your list to read? What's coming up? Ooh, what's coming up? 
Well, I have a couple that I've cracked open, but have not plowed through yet. So mm-hmm. they're in, in the queue. Uh, one that I started that I'm really enjoying, it relates to golf, but I, but I also think relates to sales and life. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, Every Shot Must Have a Purpose. And um, uh, of course, I'm going to have to look up the author. But uh, it it's, um, comes from the coaches, uh, the coaching staff that coached uh, LPGA golfer Annika Sornstam. Mm-hmm. Or Sornstam. And uh, one of my favorite concepts so far, again, I just cracked it open, is this notion of you've got your thinking box and your decision box. So, you know, as it relates to golf, as you're standing at the tee box, staring down the fairway, kind of, you know, assessing... Uh, you know, the path ahead or potential path ahead, you are in your thinking box. But then when you step to the ball, you know, address the ball with your club, you are in the decision box, which implies thinking stops. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've stepped over the threshold. You're now in the decision box. And I just know that that translates to so many things in life where I know I'm guilty of overthinking, over-engineering, over-complicating decisions right. rather than just, you know, stepping figuratively into my decision box and executing. Just make sure the club face is square on impact, right? Thank you. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty simple. <laughs> Otherwise, everything else is extra. That's right. Uh, yeah. Why well, I think that relates to selling quite a bit, right? Is, is uh, you know, every interaction with the buyer you want to deepen your connection, deepen your curiosity, deepen your understanding of the buyer, deepen your sense of, or deepen the value you provide them. Yeah. How you get there doesn't really matter. It's does that happen? Right. right. Yeah. To me, I look at sales the same way as, as uh, everybody wants to define these tightly prescribed processes for how you get to those points. It's like, nah, it's necessarily different for everybody. Who cares? (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah. I don't care if you swing the club like Tiger Woods or Jim Furyk with his, you know, convoluted backswing. Worked for Furyk. I mean, how many majors did he win? Couple. Yeah. So wonky swing, but I mean, he would square that club face up. And it's funny you bring that up. That's what, the, of course, the cover of the book is. And and I'm now looking at it. It's by Pia Nilsson and Lynn Marriott. But there's the there's the club face right there on the cover, nice and square. Yep. And uh, yeah, you have to make sure when you set out to do something in sales or life that you've, you're, you're squarely facing the outcome you're after, right. Or at least the direction you want to go. And you're kind of, you know, you're on your way. Yeah. I'm more successful. I'm more successful at that in life than I'm in golf. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Same. Uh, Yeah. So, (laughs) well, one that's on my list, I've, heard the author interviewed and read an interview with her and I just was fascinated by it. Uh, the book is called platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. The author oh, is Marissa wow. Franco and, uh, just so much wisdom in there about, you know, just how do you, I mean, I'm just, I've just only looked at the first few, but based on interviews I've read with her about, yeah, just how do we connect with people? Right. And, and this is, is, as you know, is a big thing with me, the importance of being able to connect with, with your buyers at just a human level as a prerequisite for being able to do business with them or successfully do business with them. And, 
Yeah, I mean, she brings up some things that that I'd seen in other books, like uh, Cialdini's book Persuasion, you know, his book After Persuasion. Because uh, you know, there's people out there in the sales ecosystem saying your buyer doesn't care about connection with you. In fact, you don't even need to be friendly to them. They don't care about that. <laughs> and which is such incredible wrongheaded thinking and BS. And, yep. but Franco talks about studies that show and Cialdini talked about these, for instance, that, that, you know, buyers are more predisposed to want to do business with people who they think like them. We know the whole, Hey, we buy from people, you know, like, and trust. <laughs> Actually, there's a little extra step there. It's not, who they like necessarily it's it's and we yeah, you know, put those in air quotes but is people they think like them mm. so this idea that somehow you can yeah be completely you know business oriented let's not connect no rapport people don't care we're just in this to solve a problem it's like it's just not the way people in the world works as much as you may want it to think it does it doesn't do you think that happens more, at least that mindset and approach happens more in the transactional world? I think it does, but it's you're seeing it more and more in people advocating this in the B2B world and more complex sales. And it's just like, it's hard for sure. me to subscribe to you. And the, the funny thing that's interesting is without naming names, people are some of the biggest advocates of this are hugely personable and <laughs> yeah, go figure <laughs> And they, they, you know, connect with people for the same reason that they claim people don't want to connect with you is because of who they are as humans. So, uh, anyway, platonic Marissa wow. Franco, that's another one that's, that's on my list that, uh, I said, I've just started. I'm just according to Kindle, I'm less than 5% of the way in. Okay. That was a question I had, how, like how you consume the copy. Do you listen? Do you read, you know, and highlight and scribble through the pages or is it Kindle, which you could also. Oh, I highlight extensively through. on Kindle. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the things that I like, I take out ideas I put into my note system. When I use Evernote partly is for uh, things I want to write about. So yeah. Yeah. I gave up most for the most part gave up physical books just because I've got so many I want to read and I I sort of read multiple books simultaneously so yeah I've got a novel going got a couple of nonfiction books going and so on so yeah be impossible to carry that around uh, physically Andy on that note how have how have readers been consuming your most recent book Sell without selling out yeah do you know how they've been yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it? it's, it's, uh, exact percentages. I haven't had a chance to calculate yet. Anecdotally, <laughs> what I know is that surprising number of people have purchased both the audio and physical books. Um, well, audio and plus a digital or physical book copy. So they're reading it and listening to it, which I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Awesome. That's awesome. I wonder if that's a, a larger trend as well as that, you know, one book by two, by in two different versions. Well, I've, I've actually, you know, I, I don't do it often, but I've tried that approach where I'm actually listening to the audiobook while reading the hard copy. Oh, while reading it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually helped me just stay reined into, uh, to the words on the page, you know? And so like, you know, often my mind will start drifting because I'll have a thought based on what I just read, but my eyes will continue to go through the page, huh. but I'm still at the top of the page in my head because yeah. I drifted. 
However, when I'm listening to somebody actually read it to me while I'm reading, I stay kind of tethered to the to the page. Interesting. Yeah, not that good at it. I don't do it consistently, but I yeah. have done it and I've found it to be effective. I could see that for a couple books yeah. that I've gone so through perhaps, before. Perhaps yeah. that's what we're what we're seeing with uh Sell yeah, Without Falling Out. Yeah. Or they're dying to hear my voice. Yes, yes, of yeah, course. Yeah. Don't get enough of the podcast. I listen to you <laughs> for four hours and are uninterrupted. Uh, all right. So let's let's talk some sales stuff. Sure. We're gonna talk about quota. I mean, you're saying you're sitting on a panel here shortly to talk about quota. And yep. yeah, I'm on record as saying I'm not sure quota has a purpose anymore. Yeah, you and I have actually, we've broached this topic in previous episodes. Uh, we haven't gone too deep on it, but I guess the unfortunate thing is it's still a problem. Uh, so that's because it still exists. Yeah. Does it need to? Yeah, I, mean, that's, great. That's, I think I have the same question. I yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I look at it this way is, is if so few people are attaining it if from a percentage standpoint, then it doesn't have value anymore. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I also think about, well, there's a lot, there's a lot of factors I think about when sure. I think about the word quota, but right. you know, in the setting of quota and how ambitious businesses are or VCs are, whoever it is you want to point your fingers at, uh, maybe there's the concept of aim high, miss high, kind of knowing that it's unattainable to a degree. Uh, but if quotas missed within a certain parameter, you're still going to, we're still going to kind of hit what we're, what we're after. But then other factors include, look, if you're going to be lifting quota, wouldn't you also assume you're going to be lifting training and lifting <laughs> enablement and yeah, what? lifting your recruiting, uh, what? you know, well, I, had this, I, I can't remember if I told you the story. is <laughs> right before the start of the pandemic, I was talking to the CEOs of portfolio company, this one private equity company. And I asked the question. I said, oh, okay, we're here in November. Who's going to raise quota next year? And they all uniformly raised their hand. Yeah. So we didn't know the pandemic was on the horizon. So yeah, mm -hmm. assume a normal typical year at the end of 2019. I said, okay, well, yeah, let's, let's survey the room. What's there going to be the sort of the average. And it sort of came out to like 12%, the double digit increase. I said, okay, well, let me ask a question. So raise your hand. How many of you have invested or are confident that you've invested in your team to raise their capabilities, twelve percent. <laughs> no hands raised. No hands raised at all. And they looked at what me are you like talking about exactly. They're looking at me, what the hell are you talking about? And it's like, sure, let's just keep raising quotas, being completely unmindful of the fact that you got people that are being impacted by this, not just from a, an income perspective, but also from a personal point of view. Is is and this is going to tie to another topic where we want to talk about, it, which is win rates. But, mm. you know, if, if I, I contend that if you're a salesperson and you're never hitting quota, right? It doesn't mean necessarily that you're bad at what you do because the way quotas are set are so random. Right. But there's so little logic to it. Right. And I think, isn't there a benefit? Instead of running a whole profession – quote unquote, whole profession built on the assumption that 
the majority of people are not going to achieve their goals, why don't we change it around so that three-quarters of people do hit their goals? Because what you're doing is, is you teach people confidence, right? Mm. What I found in my career is when I took over teams and, and started teams, startups and so on, is I wanted everybody to hit their number. Yeah, I wanted everybody to feel confident, right, that they could achieve what they needed to achieve. Mm-hmm. And then my experience has been is that once people are consistently hitting quota, what's the last thing they don't want to have happen? They don't want to not ever hit their quota. Sure. So then yeah, you're in position to say, okay, well, how do we rationally and so on raise quotas in order to hit our goals and have as high a fraction of people achieve theirs? And mm-hmm. what you do is you start at the beginning is you make people <laughs> confident they can hit their goals because they have been hitting their goals. And sometimes, even in cases where it's more established companies, it was, yeah, we changed the, the quota path, if you will, for people that are new. So I'm going to ensure that through the first year, year and a half, maybe even two years, they're rock solid, right? They're on target. They're, they have the confidence knowing they can achieve what's been put in front of them mm-hmm. as opposed to from day one, feeling like they're under the gun. They got the knife you know, hanging over the back of their neck. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we can breed people that are more confident. Why aren't we doing that? Absolutely. Yeah. It speaks to retention. It speaks to employee engagement. Uh, it also speaks to personal accountability and responsibility, planning your work, working your plan, ensuring that that groundswell continues, Mm -hmm. you know, among the whole team. Uh, And it speaks to better service in general, first class service to Mm -hmm. the, to the customers and prospects. I mean, it is truly a win-win when you can create that type of environment. Yeah, it, and you touched on this before. Is you know, there's a lot of these factors in terms of the, who the investors are and so on that, that play into some of this. But you know, one of my current <laughs> bugaboos, if you will, is, and I mean, this is you tell me because you're directly involved in this. Uh, is this whole idea about well, we got to onboard people in 90 days? Right. You know, RSDRs. I'm onboard in 90 days. If we don't, there's all this lost productivity. Right, right. It's like, well, first of all, this concept of lost productivity is is not not real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and secondly, is has anyone ever, you know, tracked the data to say, look, because I assume SDRs, yeah, let's say most of them progress on to want to be AEs and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Is is have we ever, you know, done the data that said, yeah, those SDRs who onboard more predictably within a 90 day period go on to become more productive AEs. Hmm. Not that I can recall. Right. And this, cause we have this idea is that what we're doing is now is we're, we're doing this random sort of selection of people who can adapt more quickly in this early position. That's nothing to do with the future and their long-term right. career. That is, it's, that is so true. And so you like any endeavor, you know, we see this in athletics all the time in sports is, is, you know, some kid is the number one draft choice in football and everybody thinks, well, God, the guy really sucks this first year or two. But then suddenly the third year he's an all-star because mm-hmm. it took a long time. It just took longer for him for it to all make sense for it, you know, the game to slow down or whatever they, you know, terms they use is to suddenly get acclimated to the environment and start 
being able to bring his best self to that game or best or her best self to that game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we've stopped allowing that to happen in many cases. It seems like in sales. Yeah. We've talked about this book. I think the first 90 days, Mike Watkins mm-hmm. wrote it years ago. Great book actually. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the, uh, I, I, you know, I'd have to ask Mike himself, but maybe he would modify that title today you know, to the Mm -hmm. first 180 days versus first 90. But there's just been this stamp imprinted on so many of our brains that, you know, you only have this 90 day window to become a contributor of value and meet that break even point he talks about versus the consumer of value. Right. Uh, But I do think it's realistic to kind of expand that time frame to your point. Uh, I, I have, I can count them on, both hands, a number of situations where I've had either sales reps or sales development reps just slow to the take. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're watching their progression, it's just like it's like molasses. You know, when they first get there, they're trying to figure out where everything is, find their legs. You know, get an understanding of customer problems, etc. And it takes a minute to incubate. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, think about, it. I remember my first <laughs> sales job, which was out making cold calls in the field. That was our first, yeah, that was our life, right? Making cold calls in the field. I hated it. You know, it's just, um, you know, introvert, a little bit shy, didn't like it. But yeah, there were a couple of people that came in that were just seemingly rock stars, right? Nothing phased them. Yeah, they both were gone within a couple of years. Oh, I mean, yeah. I think one was out of sales altogether. I mean, it's just like, this idea, I think, that's increasingly difficult these days, especially with with onboarding new SDRs for people new to sales, is there's so much, yeah, we're going to put them on a phone. Okay, great. We're going to put them on phones. How many minutes have they actually spent on a phone actually talking to someone <laughs> oh, <laughs> up to yeah. that point in their life, right? Yeah. It was different. You and I, we, we came of age in a different generation. We We didn't have texting. We didn't have any of the asynchronous messaging, social media, whatever that exists today. Mm-hmm. So if we wanted to you know, talk to them, we actually had to talk to them. Yeah. But now it's really unfair to expect kids without that base of experience to come in and just say, Hey, let's throw them to the wolves. You know how to talk to someone on a phone. Don't you? Yeah. Go get them. Go get them. And yeah. it's like, well, no, it's, <laughs> it's nothing. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just not the way the world works these days. That's right. So, why aren't we spending more time, which takes more than 90 days to help people just learn how to connect with another human being in person or in person, but you know, on a phone, actually talking to them or on a zoom call. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. <laughs> I like that. Did you come up with that? I wish. No, that's an, <laughs> it is uh, an old quote from Archilochus. So we're going to have to look up Archilochus. Is this like a Greek philosopher? Yeah, I think it is. Oh, wow. Okay. And I'm being serious. I think it is. Um, but it's A-R-C-H-I-L-O-C-H-U-S. Mm-hmm. All right. Archilochus uh, was a Greek poet born in 680 BC. Lots I mean, smart people back there. Yeah, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty hardcore quote to have lasted this long. Yeah. Well, I was just last week I was quoting Aristotle Mm -hmm. because, you know, I was 
doing a slow burn about, again, some of these people out there that say, oh, you know, you don't need a connection with your buyers. You don't need a relationship with your buyers. They don't want to be your friends. And I'm like, well, of course they don't want to be your friends. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who wants to be your friends? But you have to be connected with them. Of course. Yeah, look up the definition of the word relationship. It's the way two or more things or people are connected (laughs) or work together. So if you're selling to someone, they're buying from you, you are connected and therefore you have a relationship. It's not a friendship. But anyway, to that point, Aristotle talked about this. He said, well, yeah, what you're describing, these are what he called friendships of utility. Meaning, yeah, you basically had a friendship that lasted the duration of the transaction. And then when the transaction was done, the quote unquote friendship was done. Hmm. So interesting. 2,500 years ago, Aristotle's have able to have these insights in a much less commercial world. I would think we could have this, you know, this cognitive dissonance that we could hold, you know, these two opposing thoughts in mind at the same time. One is that, yeah, we can be connected with someone and be not be their friend. Right. Right. Well, I also think about as a seller, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I, I like testimonials. I like referrals. Mm-hmm. You know, I like repeat business or expansion opportunities. Right. Now, if I, you know, if I cut it off at the pass after the transaction, all that goes out the window. Well, yeah. Or going back to the point I was making with, with Aristotle is if we... <laughs> If you assume that you can be brusque and yeah, people don't care, there's no relationship there, there's no connection there, I can just, you know, it's all about solving their problems. That's all they care about. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that, like I said, continues to drive me nuts because I think what those people who advocate that point of view are doing are trying to talk to an audience that is most uncomfortable with this idea of connecting with someone else. And just by saying it's not important doesn't make the need for it go away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still there. You know, you're doing business with someone, you have a connection with them, you have a de facto relationship with them. It's not a friendship, but it is a relationship. And their experience of you as a human being, according to research from CEB and the Challenger and so on, that is the single most important thing factor in their decision. Go figure. Yeah. So, yeah. And I would, I mean, I would argue it directly informs the win rate topic you just mentioned. Of course it does. Of course it does. Of course it does. <sighs> yeah. Win rates. So sometimes I feel like, and I'm writing more about this and talking to more people about it because, you know, in the SaaS world in general, I don't pick on them, but win rates are pretty low. And, yeah, 20% fairly typical. Uh, And this is not purely a software thing. There was a book that came out uh, earlier this year. Uh, Author Jennifer Colosimo, she's one of the co-authors, book called Strikingly Different Selling. But uh, they had commissioned this research firm to talk to, I don't know, 14,000 companies uh, around the world. And what the results were is that on... Deals 100K and higher, which are not big deals. Mm-hmm. Average win rate, 17%. Mm. 100K lo- or and lower or 100K and higher? 100K and higher. Really? Now, my experience, through the bulk of my career selling 
six, seven, eight, even one nine figure deal. Yeah. Uh, was about 63%. Very North of a hundred K. Yeah. Well, they're all very North of a hundred K, but yeah. still it's like, if you're, if, <laughs> if you're selling to someone, if you're investing your time and your attention as a seller and you, you've you know, been on the show and talk about time management, it's oh, like, yeah. this is how you're managing your time. Who am I selling to? But instead of this sort of broad swath of what we've seen, I said certainly in the software world is like, you know, if we just get enough deal flow going and if we're sort of halfway decent, we'll be able to pick off 20%. Mm-hmm. And we've turned selling into a casino game. Right? Yeah. We're playing the odds at that point. And as a seller, I never want to play the odds. I want to have control over my destiny. 100%, yeah. So how do we change the mindset on this? Because I have conversations with CROs of public and private companies and yeah, I get vacant stares often when I ask, well, what are you doing to improve your win rate? Mm. Or more precisely, tell me what would the impact be on revenue with each 1% increase in your win rate? Yeah. That'll light them up. Yeah. They can't answer. What are you hearing? Are they responding at all to that? They they don't have the answer to that. They're looking to you for the answer. <laughs> I don't think they've been thinking about win rate for the most part. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I'd be. I mean, I, I make a lot of assumptions, but I'd be keen to know, you know, what their top three initiatives, if win rate even represents one of them. Well, I can recall one conversation into one of them. Yeah, I can recall a conversation from again predates pandemic at a conference, but. Uh, CRO, very well-known SaaS company, publicly traded. This is like, just looked at a blank stare. It's like, because mm. I posted to him, I said, asked what his growth plans were. And it was all about top of funnel, Legion, top of funnel. Oh, wow. And we get that going. We've got this finely tuned engine. We'll hire more SDRs. We'll produce more. I'm like, so wouldn't it be cheaper and faster to go revenue? Yeah, yeah, you're all stay with me here for a <laughs> yeah, second. To increase your win rate. Let's just say five percent this year. <laughs> uh-huh. It's just like and it, but the way he responded was it's wasn't even on his list of things to look at. Interesting. And and this gets back to sort of the quota conversation, because I would bring this up with you, is that yeah. I don't care if if you're a rep hitting quota, but your win rate's at twenty percent. Right. It sounds like a horrible place to be. Right. I mean, yeah, you may be making some dollars, but basically you're dealing in a world of defeat. Mm-hmm. A lot right? of heavy if, lifting. Yeah. If, to, no, to no avail. Right. If so, if, and I like to say, you know, phrase this way to people who have low win rates. I said, so if practice makes perfect and your win rate is, let's say it's 20%, what are you practicing? Yeah. You're practicing losing. Yeah. You're getting really good at it. Wow. Why? But why? Why? I'm asking you as a sales leader, senior sales leader. Why aren't more companies, more sales leaders focused on saying, yeah, this is, this is, as somebody called, somebody said it to me recently, this is the Mac daddy of of all sales metrics because this is the the customer's ultimate referendum on how well you're doing. Yeah, no question. I think about um, what the deterrents are to not putting that metric in the spotlight more. So maybe maybe there's this thought that it's just going to take too much time and and um, 
headcount maybe and, and collective bandwidth to actually drive down into uh, producing higher win rates in terms of training, enablement, uh, maybe rollouts of new methodologies, certifications internally. Uh, maybe it's seen as like, man, we're, we're just, we don't have time for that. You know what I mean? We've got numbers to hit yesterday. Mm. And maybe that's, maybe that's what's veering a lot of businesses away from using that as a key metric. But isn't it the same mindset you just described that is condemning us to serve repetitive failure yeah. of reps yeah. to hit quota, right? As it is, we're, ironically. We're just so busy. I mean, I, I've, served, I've heard that on a few occasions from people that say senior sales leaders have read my book and said, oh, so good. But mm -hmm. I'm saying, but what? Mm -hmm. I've got a number to hit. It's like, right. so? So what you're saying is the only way you can hit your number is to be super salesy? Is that what you're saying? That's, and it's just like, at some point we have to address these issues and I don't, yeah, I'd argue me, it doesn't have to be that expensive because part of it I think is also a, it's a culture thing, right? No, no question. I mean, keep in mind too, the, the, uh, for lack of a better term that, you know, a lot of sales leaders feel their heads are on the chopping block. Sure. All the time. Well, understandably so, right? Constant we look at the, the data. That, yeah. That they'll be replaced like that if, if we're not hitting. Also an issue, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah, we bring in CROs. What's the average tenure of CROs are 18 months, maybe 18 months or less these months. days. Yeah. Yeah. How can you come in and implement your program? I mean, it's such a disincentive to change, right? It's a disincentive mm -hmm. to innovate, a disincentive, unless there's a particular, you know, CEO and, and senior leadership team that says, look, this just isn't, this isn't happening. We're going to have to bite the bullet for a couple quarters and say, look, we got to turn this ship here because yeah, we're, we're not going anywhere with this type of performance. Yeah. So perhaps you, you know, you make it a sequential change. You know, you dip your toe in the water in Q1 and you, you at least get talking about it culturally mm -hmm. about what's to come over the, over the next or uh, four quarters or so. And then I have some solutions, by the way. You want to hear a couple of mine? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So here's, here's, these You're are with minor. Me, though. These are minor, but let me run this one by you. I don't think we've sure. talked about this. Yeah. So let's say we change sales manager and sales leader compensation is that, you know, some of it, the variable comp, right? Is, is say, look, a major chunk of your variable comp is going to be based on not, not the percentage of your sellers, the hit quota, but the number that hit quota, because what we're going to do is we're going to pay you a flat fee for every seller that hits their number. Right. So, Versus a cohort that hit. Versus a cohort that hits or whatever. Yeah. So your job now as a manager is to ensure that everybody crosses the line because you get a flat fee for everyone that crosses the line. So you're not getting override on percentage of sales anymore. It's just, no. <laughs> you're, the major chunk of your compensation is, look, you're going to get, you got 10 sellers. We're going to give you 10 grand for everyone that comes across the finish line. And I guarantee you, 
you'd start seeing a much higher fraction of sellers hit quota or the conversations within management about how quotas are set would change instantly as well. One and or both of those would take place. For the better. For the better. Do you know any of these comp plans that are in place yet? No. I mean, I've started, you know, sort of telling people, I think this would be a way to go. And it's like (laughs) shocked silence for most of them. Because, yeah, they try to get by an aggregate. And it's like, well, no, our job is not just to have three or four people succeed. Your job as a sales leader is everybody that you can succeed to get in the boat of success with you. You want to have you know, everybody feeling confident they can contribute to the extent possible, right? We know by numbers, not everybody's going to do it. But if you knew as a sales manager that you, know, you had a hundred, let's say a hundred K bonus, that was based on the number of people they hit their numbers. I guarantee a much higher fraction would overnight. Uh, I don't doubt it, Andy. You know, I think in theory, it sounds like the ideal situation. <laughs> it theory, really does. Yes. Practically, the way I'm thinking about it in terms sure. of, you know, risks would be if that were how, if, the, if that is how uh, my comp plan was adjusted, for example, mm-hmm. I think one of my number one concerns would be micromanaging of the individual contributors, you know, because I'm responsible now for every single head versus the cohort. Sure. And so now I'm going to be skip leveling all the time, which is very healthy in in many respects, but there's a lot of leaders out there that I have worked for myself Mm -hmm. who they'll, they'll press on and press on and kind of, disrupt and get in your way. And it's not always healthy. I agree. That's, that's the danger. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's a major danger or a major risk, but it's just one thing I'd be thinking about when I get to the practical level. But I also think for a practical level as a sales leader, you'd say, well, what are we missing in the way we're training and enabling these people? Oh, yeah. Just to be able to, to make this so that, you know, it gives you a greater sense of confidence that you can work with people who have a better chance of making it happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it has to go back to hiring obviously as well. And the, who are getting the right people in, but, but I'm, yeah, I've brought this up before. I just sort of big believer in this idea is that, you know, the way you breed people within an organization to be successful is you let them taste success and experience success. And then they want to keep succeeding. Right. And you're not going to get hundred percent of the people to do it. We know that, but we clearly could have a higher fraction of people doing it than, than we are today. Mm-hmm. Uh, just hitting their number. And then they feel good about themselves. Right. I mean, no one sales from the uncrushed uh, survey well, last year that what 75% of sellers, B2B sellers are, you know, feeling the stress and some level of, you know, mental unease about what's happening is like, sure. We're not tough, you know, performance-based profession. Sure. Right. It shouldn't be that percentage of people that are feeling the way they do about it. Not three fourths. No, no, no. I mean, so it's, we just create this environment. This, I said, I think just, yeah. Counterproductive. Well, um, it's discussions like this. That'll get the wheels turning. We just got to make sure that we uh, share this episode with a lot of sales leaders. (laughs) (laughs) We will. We should, let's go on the road. We'll, we'll we'll do this live. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Ralph, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but uh, look forward to having you back. And uh, as always, such a pleasure. 
Oh, feelings mutual. Thanks for and, having me on, Andy. I love love chatting with you. Likewise. And so before we go, you got to tell us a little about uh, the band. Sure. Ralph's yeah, long member of this band for how many years now? Yeah, well, we started in early 1994. Wow, so almost 30 years. Yeah, still cranking. Uh, well, a few iterations personnel-wise, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, core of the members are still part of the band. Uh, but we're a rock band. We're called Segway, S-E-G-U-E. You could find us on all the all the well-known platforms from Apple Music to Spotify uh, to Pandora, etc. Uh, the most recent uh, record we released is called Your Ebb. Two words, Y-E-R-E-B-B. Uh, we, a lot of us are from Pacifica, California, which is a surf town. Uh, you know, back in the day, the slang, your ebb meant you're jealous. So Ah. we produced this record. It's a mix of originals and a couple covers. And we just, you know, felt that we felt that kind of, uh, swagger when we released it. You know what? Your ebb. Your ebb. Well, you know, I've listened to it. I like it. Uh, And, you know, at the core of the core is the drummer, obviously, in a rock band, <laughs> which is You're Ralph Barcy. Ralph Barcy. <laughs> uh, and you can find some video of Ralph. Uh, yeah. Older video. I some that I've seen. It was a little older. Rocking out. Rocking yeah. Out. Yeah, I love playing the drums. Good release. And um, I encourage everybody out there who's even thought about picking up a pair of drumsticks to go for it. Yeah. Rock and roll. And how many how many billions of downloads on Spotify? Well, I think we've just uh, we're just shy of one. One billion. Yeah. <laughs> Emphasis wow. on the term "just shy." Just shy, right? All right. Well, thanks, though, Andy. I think you can go to on on your personal website. Do you have like a tour schedule? I uh, not not a tour schedule. I wish we were on tour, but. Yeah, ralphbarcy.com forward slash Segway, S-E-G-U-E, and you'll learn a little bit more about us. You'll get to hear some of the tracks and records I'm talking about and would love to see you at a live performance someday. Come up and say hello. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we got to get to San Diego, Andy. Get to San Diego, yeah. You got family there, everything. Okay, we'll make that happen. All right, Ralph, thank you. Thank you. Happy Halloween. Hey, happy Halloween. All right, cheers. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Ralph Barcy, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.